Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today at the Untitled Art Podcast, live recording from Miami Beach at Untitled Arts 11th edition. I am Clara Andrade, the Director of Development and Programming at Untitled Art. I am thrilled to present the last conversation of the day, titled Reproductive Justice, Art History and Witchcraft in Angela's Prelates the Robin Ones, presented by Son Horton Presents. And I also want to invite you all to visit the gallery at Booth C11. Angela Fralates and Maritza Lacayo will discuss reproductive justice, art history, and witchcraft in the context of Fralates' monumental painting installation, The Raving Ones, on view as a special project at Untitled Art Fair inside the VIP lounge. Maritza Lacayo is the assistant curator at the Perret Art Museum in Miami. At PAM, she has created numerous exhibition projects and has various exciting forthcoming exhibitions as well, such as Jason Safety, Coming to Fruition, and monographic shows featuring Calida Garcia Robles and Jose Parla. Lacayo regularly works with the John Arts Foundation as a master teacher, also curating both the regional and national exhibitions in 2019 and 2020. In addition to her extensive curatorial practice, Lacayo frequently contributes writing to arts platforms and exhibitions, catalogs, and monographs. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Art History from the American University of Paris and a Master of Letters in Modern and Contemporary Art and Art World Practice from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Maritza, I hand over the mic to you now. Thank you for being part of Untitled Arts Programming, and I hope all you enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the intro. <laughs> Thank you for having us here. Yeah. So I wanted to, I guess, start by asking you, Angela, a little bit about the work itself. I mean, that's really why we're all here. That's what started this initial collaboration. And that's what I'm assuming a lot of the people who are here and who are listening would have had a chance to see in the VIP lounge. Maybe we start there just talking about the work itself. Yeah, sure. Okay. So Right over there is a 28-foot-long wall drawing that has this kind of frenzied tangle of medicinals um, that a Catholic nun, Hildegard von Bingen, used in one of her many published works as um, for reproductive health. And um, sitting on top of that are three paintings that depict um, a gaggle of maenads kind of romping about through... Um, this kind of archaeological representation of different goddesses throughout history, other medicinal plants, and especially are kind of meant to act as spell paintings. Um, the reason I got to this in the first place is because my background is kind of for the last 10 years, I've been working on um, working with institutions, mining collections, looking for invisible histories, dormant narratives specific to a historic home or an institution's collection. And sometimes I'm like celebrating women who have been kind of lost to history. Other times I'm um, thinking about the female figure more broadly and kind of pulling out threads and connecting it to contemporary life. Um, so for this project, the reason I started getting into witchcraft in the first place is because I found out that the first woman to ever be charged and murdered for witchcraft happened 0.2 miles from the institution with which I was proposing at the Wadsworth in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, that just sent me on this 
crazy rabbit hole where I started looking at their collection through the lens of the occult and feminine mysticism and so on. And so many things kind of bubbled to the surface, um, but also led me to think about the witch hunts, the legacy of the witch hunts, how we're still dealing with a lot of the template that was built during that time period and why some of these thoughts and ideas still kind of like linger and echo and fuck up our lives today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think maybe it's fair to the audience and to those who are listening to know how and why we decided to have the conversation together. Mm-hmm. Um, it all started with a conversation that I did at the Perez with artist Antonia Wright. Uh, I hope she's uh, has a chance to listen to this eventually, but she's an incredible local Cuban-American artist. And we had a conversation titled Art in a Post-Roe Age. Mm-hmm. So we had that conversation right after the overturning of Roe, right after the Dobbs decision. Um, and of course, this is really where our work begins, right? I would argue. Uh, those of us who have been involved when it comes to reprodu- reproductive justice, reproductive rights, abortion rights, etc. And so we wanted to have the conversation and it meant a lot for us to have the conversation at Perez Art Museum, right? We wanted to have the conversation in an institution because we wanted other institutions, other curators, other artists to know and be aware that they should not be afraid to have these conversations in institutions. Mm-hmm. I enjoy getting in trouble, I, apparently, because I think, it's, I think it's important to use the platforms that you have. Mm-hmm. So then you reached out to me after that conversation, and we've since sort of bonded about our love for, for activism when it comes to this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to really emphasize that. I wanted to emphasize the importance of curators working with artists who are creating work like yours, Mm -hmm. because that's how we can get more people involved in the conversation. That's how we can get more people to understand how these issues actually affect people every single day, right? This is not something abstract. I know that for a lot of people, it feels that way. Mm -hmm. But when you cut off access to essential health care for women and for all people with the capacity for pregnancy, you are quite literally uh, tying their hands behind their backs Mm -hmm. and you are rerouting Mm -hmm. their lives Mm -hmm. uh, without their consent, Mm -hmm. essentially. So art right now, I think there's a certain responsibility that we need to take as curators, as artists, galleries, institutions, you name it, to have this conversation. So I'm glad that Untitled, you know, wanted you to show this work in the VIP lounge. I'm glad that you were able to put this conversation together for us because this is a really good point of departure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what was fascinating about the research um, and why I kind of landed in this weird world of witchcraft is because uh, I read this fantastic book, which, you know, we talked about this, um, Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici. And she kind of locates this really fascinating um, argument uh, that like what Marx left out, right? Like how we got to where we are but he left out this conversation around gender. And so this idea of moving from uh, full access to the commons and the surplus goes to the landowner and closing that space. And now you have a waged worker. The women were then forcibly removed from the services that they were normally associated with into these spaces where they were now responsible for the domestic reproduction of wage labor by creating children that would then go into the workforce, the next generation of labor. Um, But then we're receiving no income or support for that. And we're still dealing with the repercussions of that period. Um, Also, the services that they were associated with, this was a top-down move, right? So 
it was outlawed to practice midwifery as a woman. It was outlawed to be a prophet. Women weren't allowed to talk to God <laughs> like in this, in this particular world. Um, and so I just think it's fascinating when you can kind of see how some of these like threads still reach out millennia later, you know, like centuries later and what that, why we have to deal with that right now, I don't understand, but I think it's fascinating to kind of uncover some of that stuff. Well, I'm, that's one of my favorite things about your practice, though, is that you're creating or you're you're illustrating and, and giving the audience, giving the viewer um, a chance to actually understand these threads and making those connections. Because for a lot of people, the relationship between what's happening now and witchcraft and capitalism <laughs> is maybe not the most obvious. Direct line. It's not the yeah. most direct line. Um, but of course, your work allows us to understand that a little bit better and to open up the conversation, I think, because when we're thinking about, for example, reproductive justice, the term reproductive justice and reproductive rights is very different, right? Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about reproductive rights, it's more the legal avenues, mm -hmm. but reproductive justice is more inclusive, more holistic, thinking about access itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, birth control, right? It may, it may be legal for now, uh -huh. but uh, that doesn't mean that everyone has access to it. Right. So reproductive justice is really a more encompassing term. And so I think that, you know, through through your practice and through talking about your work and all of that, I was able to kind of start to think about reproductive justice in a new way. Mm -hmm. And and thank you for introducing me to Caliban and the Witch. I recommend everybody read that. Mm -hmm. It's very dense, it's as very you dense, warned me, very dense. very dense. But it's really, really good because it allows me now to talk about the things that are happening today from a very different perspective and a different historical narrative mm -hmm. that I was vaguely aware of, but now feel like I can actually talk about it in depth. Mm -hmm. And that's why history is so important too. Mm -hmm. And you describe yourself as a research-based painter, uh -huh. which I think is so accurate, obviously, because you're uncovering a lot of the things that are not in our art history or history textbooks, but through your practice, we're creating those threads now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's really nourishing and fueling to have these new juicy little projects to deal in all the time. I mean, I'm always dealing with this idea of where meaning comes from, like why we believe the things that we believe personally, politically, culturally. And um, so much of that is just like we're basically dealing with old thoughts that just kind of like they're not even tethered to anything real anymore. They're just something that's kind of like in the ethers and we're subject to. And early on, I realized that imagery has a big role in this. Art history plays a large role in this. And I think that led me to, you know, 70s feminism and the deconstruction and, you know, analyzing um, all of these kinds of, uh, you know, built up monuments in our like psyches. Um, but then I started wondering how malleable are those images? Is it possible to insert new meaning in these things we become so accustomed to? Can we actually humanize the figures that we see or can we complicate the ways in which we understand these images um so yeah yeah and, and can we uncover people who have been left out uh -huh. i mean i've learned a lot from you especially i forgot her name but um hilda something yes hilda yeah yeah can you talk to us a little bit about that that was a very fun fact nugget for me the hilda god yeah. Uh, from yeah. the, yes. Okay. So she was born in 1098. Uh, she published, I think, 475 books. Uh, one of the, which um, I was sourcing, which is like a lot of them were on pharmacia or, you know, science, what science was then. Um, 
And, you know, she was a Catholic nun. She was uh, where she worked. She was servicing people. Nunneries were oftentimes the hospitals, the nearest hospital and points of care. So, um, yeah, she's at, but a lot of people know who she is because she was a mystic. She has like, you know, she had the, she music. She like performed and composed all these things. I mean, she's really a fascinating figure in general beyond that. But I love the idea that this sainted Catholic nun who's, you know, was like practicing these things that today would be sacrilegious. I mean, that reminds me very much of the clergy uh, abortion counseling service back in the 60s. It was really the clergy that was supporting women Mm -hmm. finding and accessing abortion care. It was the church. And so it's just, you know, one of the things that I find, yeah, there we go. One of the things that I find most fascinating about that history is that how how much that's been subverted and how much that has changed right Mm -hmm. now there's a completely different religious interpretation when it comes to abortion rights and reproductive freedom but when you look back and as you said you know where where do these meanings come from where do these thoughts come from you have to kind of dive dive in and you have to not be afraid to go a little further back this is recent history obviously 60s but it was the clergy that was providing the service of 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 linking women to doctors who could provide that service. And then we also, at least I, when I think of that, I also reflect on the fact that it was also the Republican party that used to be very much in favor mm-hmm. of abortion rights until the eighties when, when Ronald Reagan was elected. And that was really the election that kind of changed everything for reproductive freedom in the United States. But it was Republicans who believed in abortion rights because, and I, and I would agree with this, it's because they were always the party of small government, of uh, of having the ability to pursue the American dream and do whatever it is that you want to do without government intervention. Somewhere along the lines that changed, and that line was uh, the 1980 presidential election, and it was the moral moral majority and Jerry Falwell that were able to, in my opinion, create the most successful marketing campaign in modern history. I mean, they were able to take an issue that meant almost nothing to nobody, mm-hmm. the issue of abortion, and turn it into a single issue that would bring out single issue voters. And that is incredible. I mean, there's something to learn from that. I don't think that we should ever be as manipulative uh, or as awful <laughs> right. um, as they are in terms of their message, but we have to be as tenacious. Right. I mean, that that's the thing about the witch hunts, too, is that if you think about what who these women were, um, when they moved from these kind of communal living environments to now being dependent on male income only, you have women who are widowed, who have lack of family support. Um, so if they're going into homes and maybe providing care for children or um, or they're forced to beg, go from house to house. The whole witch thing came because these women would be like, you know, like, can I have some butter? Can I have some bread? And then they would be denied and then they would curse, you know, like out of anger. And this was supposed to have then killed a cow or made a storm happen that flattened the village or something. And that's not obviously true. (laughs) Like that couldn't have happened, right? Depends on your belief system. Um, But anyway, I think, um, uh, what was I going with the, what was I saying? We were kind of thinking about the Republican narrative and then going, comparing that to right. the, to the, well, attaching, attaching fear and suspicion and superstition, that was a top down job. And just to say that that's very reminiscent of a, something that took place maybe during the 2016 to, to 
to present day conversation. I think it's an incredible tool and it's um, incredibly powerful and it's created a lot of problems for a lot of people. Yeah. And we were, we were talking earlier too, since you brought up witchcraft, this idea of, of it being a rebellious act, right? Yeah. That, that you could accuse a woman of being a witch just for having critical thinking skills. Right. I mean, that was, that's really right. all it took for you to be considered a witch. And I think that, you know, we're, there's so many women now who are kind of reclaiming mm -hmm. that title and who are thinking about it as a way to rebel, as a way to fight against a system that is constantly oppressing, manhandling, uh, manipulating, and putting in our place, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that and how you've also intertwined that within your practice. Mm -hmm. There's this really great quote in Federici's book where she says that the world had to be disenchanted in order to be dominated. And I think there's something so fascinating about this need to control and how closely that is attached to fear and how closely that's attached to capitalism, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word. I mean, this kind of like need to like force people into a certain scenario, like turn the body into a mechanism of labor as opposed to like a human being that kind of like needs sustenance and love and beauty and all of these things. So um, there's something about like the ways in which women were often also associated with nature in the way that like the cosmos is magical and mysterious and like unknown mysteries can occur. And there needs to be a, a like harnessing and a witnessing and a respect for and yeah, it's like if you're in this plunder mentality, that doesn't work so well, right? Like, so I think that you see right now there's a real contemporary movement and embrace of witchcraft um, because, A, it feels empowering. It does feel rebellious. It feels um, like, but it's also this want to kind of be in a state of the unknown that feels powerful instead of fearful with climate change and laws being changed that take away um, our life and ability to choose all of these things feel really insurmountable. And I think the idea of feeling like you might be able to just like light a candle and use a crystal to do like, <laughs> to change your world a little bit feels pretty great. Yeah, I mean, I think people, people need to feel like they're slightly more in control than, mm -hmm. than they are. But what you were saying about kind of enchantment, mm -hmm. it reminds me of the book that I read, uh, Life's Work by Dr. Willie Parker. Mm -hmm. And I know we, we talked about this, but it's a great book for those of you who haven't heard of it or haven't read it. It's called Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker. And he is an abortion provider in the South. And he is a, a black man and he's also a devout Christian. So these are all things that uh, he, he, he builds a thread between all of them because they're things that sometimes people assume can't, can't go together, specifically the, the Christian and abortion provider part. But he says that when you sentimentalize a very biological, normal thing, which is procreation, which is pregnancy, then any intervention in that process becomes problematic, right? Any intervention in that process can be interpreted as evil, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. And so the way that he talks about that reminds me of what you were just saying, is that when you kind of take that magic out of it, you know, that's the only time that you can actually have either a real conversation or, or try and actually understand what's going on. I mean, I know that you were talking about it in a much more negative sense. I mean, thinking about, dom you know, dominance, but I think that it's an important point to make 
that when you think about these things rooted in reality, that that's the only time that you can actually come up with solutions for some of these issues. Um, in life's work, he, he really emphasizes the importance of having these conversations rooted in, you know, everyday people and thinking about how when you cut that access to care, as I already said, you're put, you know, you're tying people's hands behind their back, but you're also not understanding how that also becomes an economic issue, a generational issue. Um, so removing that kind of idea that pregnancy is this sort of miraculous, um, thing, which for some women it will be because maybe it was very hard for them to get there, but generally speaking, it is not right. So removing the magic from it allows us to have a more rational, more real rooted conversation, I would think. Well, I also think it's interesting that and it's important to point out that women are only fertile for a week out of the month, whereas men are fertile 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so why are we policing this body instead of another <laughs> that like maybe, you know, <laughs> and, for, and, and that and that question is rooted in a patriarchal history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And in my generation, in my lifetime and in everyone's lifetime here, that's not going to change. Right. All we can do is create very incremental progress. But a book just came out recently called Ejaculate Responsibly. Have you heard of that? Yeah. So it's just a new way of thinking about abortion and policing. Why are we policing this body when it's the other body that has so much more of an ability to procreate? But yeah, it's, it's, it's a fair argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's an For- extremely fair argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if uh, where the slide the slide is, but it'll, it'll get to that. But life's work is up there. There's another book called the turn away study that I also highly recommend. It follows a thousand women. Uh, some, some of whom were denied an abortion at one point and some of whom were able to access an abortion and it follows them for 10 years. And so you're able to actually see and understand how these decisions were able to impact their lives. And I think that the, the kind of anti-choice argument goes out the window when you read it, because for people who want the more kind of anecdotal conversation about abortion, that book is great. And then the other one that's up there or will be up there is uh, it's called Pro by Katha Pollitt. That one's an amazing book as well. That's, that's a little bit more straightforward, arguing about um, why you should be pro-choice, but really coming more from like a historical perspective. And of course, life's work, which is a part memoir, part um, kind of threading all of those themes together of being an abortion provider, being a devout Christian, being a black man. Um, so those are three books that I just wanted to share today because if, if, if anyone's interested in kind of furthering their knowledge on the history of abortion and, and, and reproductive justice in the United States, I think that's a, a great, a great place to start. Yeah. Um, and then just to actually, you'd asked a question. I don't think I answered it about, um, the, enacting contemporary spellcraft into the paintings actually because the paintings actually um, are embedded with magical properties so there is moon water and crystals embedded in the work and I worked with and collaborated with a professional witch named Pam Grossman who wrote two fantastic books and multiple other things Um, uh, she wrote witchcraft put out by Toshin And uh, it's just a feast for the eyes, but also like these really illuminating essays throughout the whole thing. And um, she crafted a little, a little, a really powerful, beautiful spell that will transform you. And if you go to the QR code on the back of those postcards over there, or just go to my website, you can do it yourself. Um, Yeah, 
it, it, it kind of embodies and embraces and kind of talks about all the ways that like working with the energies can help and change the world. And I realized in this, because I, prior to this project, was not a practicing witch. I'm not sure I am now either necessarily, but I, uh, I think that if the definition of witchcraft is to harness energies with an intention to change something, then I've essentially been doing witchcraft my whole career because it's all I care about. It's all I want to do in my paintings, right? So, and maybe all art is that to a certain degree. And I think that's kind of fascinating as an idea. Yeah, I, I would hope that all art is that. I mean, I think for me, the most important thing is for people to use art as a catalyst for conversation, right? The way that we're doing now, but in, in really any time that you can just have a conversation with someone about something that maybe is difficult or, or maybe isn't difficult, but is just beautiful. You know, art as a catalyst for conversation has incredible power. It has the ability to change minds, alter perspectives, uh, provide a new perspective. I mean, it's, I think that that's what art is really all about. And working as a curator, that's always my goal. You know, my goal is for people to encounter something at the museum and hopefully it sparks an interest and hopefully they go home and maybe they learn a little bit more about it on their own or or maybe they're just in the gallery and 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 they meet someone there and they both snicker at the painting because they both hate it. I don't care. <laughs> but at least they're engaging, at least they're using it as a way to to get to know someone else even in that short moment. I mean, art not only is catalyst for conversation but also as a way to harness and create compassion, empathy, understanding. I think that that's really I would hope the purpose of art and I and I understand and I see and I feel the irony that I'm sitting at an art fair saying that. <laughs> but I think that at the end of the day, we're all here because we love art. We want to have these conversations. We want to get to know artists and we want to have these difficult conversations. We want to learn and we want to expand our mind and art has the power, power to do that. If not, none of us would be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you because you did mention how you think the museum and curatorial and the art world might have a responsibility in this, but can you talk a little about what some of the resistance is or what some of the practical problems of institutions taking on conversations like this might be? Yeah, the, the practical problems are tough for institutions because a lot of us are publicly funded or at least partly publicly funded. So for us, you know, we receive money from the county. So we're a, in a nonpartisan institution. So when we have the conversation, when I had the conversation with Antonia Wright, art in a post-Roe age, I had to, it was really difficult for me. I had to talk about it from the perspective of just the art. I had to focus on the art. I had to focus on her practice, on her work. And she could say whatever she wanted. But I was there as, you know, not just as Maritza Lacayo. I was there as assistant curator of Perez Art Museum Miami as a representation of the museum. So it's difficult because you have to change the narrative. You have to change the way that you approach the conversation. And then, unfortunately, there's also the safety issue. You know, we had extra security that night. There was a guard right behind me behind the curtain because you don't know if someone's going to show up and and try and hurt me or Antonia or or show up in the audience and throw a tomato at me. I don't know. (laughs) You know, I don't know what they're there to do. But the thing is that you have to be you have to be willing to get into into good trouble, as as John Lewis said, if you're not getting into good trouble, then nothing is going to change. You don't, you can't expect change to happen or you can't expect everybody else to do it for you. I mean, those of us who have either been marginalized or who have had a harder time, 
I think it's natural to us to be involved. I think it's natural for us to want to be part of those conversations, but I want other people to be involved. And, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this at the beginning or not, but this is an issue that affects a lot more people than uh, they might initially imagine or realize. There are a lot of people who think, oh, abortion's this like thing that might never affect me. Or like, if you're a man, you think it like doesn't matter to you. I mean, I always pose the question. I'm like, if you grew up in like, let's say a pretty stable home, a financially secure home, you never know if that was only the reality because at one point, maybe your mother terminated a pregnancy Mm -hmm. or the grandmother. You don't know how you got to where you are because Mm -hmm. there were women before you. I mean, one in every three women Mm -hmm. in the United States Mm -hmm. will or has had an abortion. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's hard because these are facts, but they've become politicized. So I couldn't say any of those things at, at the talk at, at the museum. So you just, you have to play this weird, you have to do this weird little dance. Mm -hmm. And so wherever I have the mic, I'll try and do the dance, but the dance will look different every time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that work. For doing the that's, dance. Yeah. <laughs> dance for us, Maritza. Um, okay. I think that's like about yeah. time. Perfect th- time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, should we open it up to yeah. questions if anyone has any or? I was going to ask you um, about your palettes. That's one of the first things that kind of struck me when I saw your work um, is how vivid they are um, and how powerful and deep and rich the colors are. And I didn't know if that was significant to the painting, a symbolism related to color, if you could speak to that. Sure. I mean, I often start with a really high key palette because I tend to darken and muddy as time goes on. But um, with this one in particular, because I was coming at the, the, through this like side door of thinking about magical properties, um, I did kind of consider color magic as part of it, if you will. So orange is like energetic and hot pink is, um, you know, passion and all these. So all these different things are embedded in that. But I've often used like high key palettes to kind of infuse with an intensity or like a like especially palettes that are often considered feminine, I want them to be monumental and heroic and upend some of that association, I guess, and just like have this really intense. I really want my work to be seductive though too. Like I just really want them to pull someone in so that they'll hang out with it long enough to understand the kind of layered meanings that might emerge over time. We were talking before and I was saying one of my really like, driving motivating factors when I'm making work is that they're better in person than they are online. I feel like you get the reverse all the time right now. And this is kind of a good opportunity to see that because there's like so many artists I was so excited to see in person, but you see them and you're like, oh, hmm, that doesn't have the surface I thought it would, or that doesn't have the resonance I thought it would. So yeah, I mean, I hope they're better in person, but that's like, yeah. Um, hi. So you uh, touched upon um, the uh, the fact that the paintings are made with certain materials, um, and that they're spells. That they're they're spells sort of embedded in the the paint. Can you talk about the materials a little bit, and also talk about if you can? Um, I think when we first met and I first laid eyes on the paintings, I said they 
to me look like the Sistine Chapel on mushrooms, you know, like there's, there's this, um, sort of religious, uh, rapturous aspect to them. Um, and then you talk, discuss the color, but like, can you just talk more about like those, um, maybe mystical elements in the, in the work? Yeah mystical elements but what did you ask in the first part of that question um yeah this yeah right 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 so the materials themselves are i was i consulted my witch pam grossman ahead of time about particular crystals and things that would like represent specific things that would lead to self-sovereignty so um bodily autonomy like freedom joy pleasure seeking and i think i mentioned i specifically chose figures from another painting i'm often plucking figures from art history because i'm trying to recontextualize them i'm trying to see if i can change the meaning of these figures not by changing anything very much at all about the what they look like but just by kind of putting them in a new spot and changing through context through environment through my own intention and so um, that was a big, so the, but the figures that I plucked from this particular form of art history were maenads and maenads, as you probably know from antiquity, were erratic, um, like pleasure seeking Dionysus followers. Um, but then like at the end of the night, they like tear an animal with their own van, bare hands from limb from limb, you know, like it's. I'm a vegetarian. This is like not something I seek in life, but it is like powerful to think. And I, it was like fear inducing, right? This is like the epitome of a dangerous woman for that period. And so I wanted this kind of body language that would signal that. Um, I think a group of feral women, women gathering in any way is really terrifying to the powers that be. And so I kind of wanted that immersed in the work. And then the process through which I paint the paintings, I'll often paint them traditionally, but then I lay them on the floor and I put this copious amounts of um, synthetic resin and paint pigment on the painting. And then they just do what they do in a way where like, I have no control at all. I mean, I do, I have the final say, I can like cover stuff up or repour or whatever, but it does something like, this is the kind of harnessing of the energies that I can't control. And it's an unknown and it's a mystery. And all artists are kind of most, a lot of artists are living in that space where like you can't control the thing. And so that to me also feels kind of like forming content coming together, you know, <laughs> leaving it up to chance a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Or magic. Yeah. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you all so much.